So I'm super excited to introduce our co-host today, Alexander Hagerup. Um, he is uh, joining us from Earth, and he is going to tell us where on Earth he is because he has recently transported himself, and we'll talk a little bit about that because I think he needed a change, which is uh, one of the topics for today is how do, how do we sort of deal with isolation and being a founder and having distributed teams, et cetera. Uh, Alexander's a lifelong entrepreneur. Um, he has, he's the current founder of Vic.ai, which is an artificially intelligent accounting platform. He'll tell a little bit more about that. He's built two, two tech companies and sold them before his 30th birthday. Once you get introduced to him, you'll wonder if he's actually reached his 30th birthday. He's very youthful. Um, and uh, he's an angel investor in 20 different uh, startups and companies. Um, and so with that, Alexander, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself and get a little bit more detail. Thanks, Scott. So that's why I have my beard, so that people can actually think that I'm more than 30. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not an advantage to look too young, actually. So, uh, yeah, but anyways, I'm, I'm from Norway. Um, been an entrepreneur since I was 15 years old. Always wanted to start companies. Started, started early at that, uh, which I think is always easier. The earlier you start building a company, the easier it is. So, uh, so I've done, uh, I've done that for many, many years. I tried to study accounting and finance. So I started my bachelor. Um, I didn't finish it because of one of my companies was growing a little bit too fast and required too much attention. So, um, I basically done, I guess, three things. I, I built up a cloud, uh, backup or a cloud storage business in, in Europe from 2005. And we got acquired in 2014 by a NASDAQ listed company. Then I turned my attention to accounting and worked with a cloud accounting platform, similar to Intact or NetSuite over here in the US. So we, we grew that business quite significantly and then we IPO'd it on the Stockholm exchange. And then uh, right when we were doing that, um, I decided to start VKI, which is an AI platform for, uh, for accounting. So that's me in a nutshell. myself. So let's start with um, you being, uh, make, how was the decision? Let's I want to go back in time a little bit. How did you make the decision that you were going to not continue and finish up your degree and instead focus on uh, your startup? Like what was the, how did that decision go and um, who did you talk to or what was that like? Sure. Yeah, no, that was, that was actually super easy because I thought I could always go back and do my exams, uh, but I can't go back to the business because if I leave that, it's going to just stop. So that was an easy decision. I spoke with my family and my mom and dad has always supported me, whatever I wanted to do. So they were just, yeah, just go and do it and then see how it goes. So uh, it was actually not an, uh, not a hard decision at all. It was a very easy one and I've never looked back. So uh, I don't think I would have used that degree for anything anyways, because I would just have started companies and I wouldn't need that degree for, for anything. But I actually liked studying in terms of, I think it makes you a little more methodical in, in having to study through material. So I think studying itself may, may be useful, but uh, I, I didn't need a degree for anything. Oddly enough, you, you at the same time, you didn't complete a degree, you have done a number of startups in the accounting space. Um, and so there, it, it, you, you may have not finished the degree, but the degree seems to be chasing you anyway. Um, when do you plan to go back and take the exams? Your parents did contact me and they just wanted me to ask you on camera. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's unfortunately not going to happen. So they'll, <laughs> they'll keep having a, a son with no degrees. 
All right. Well, they're not disappointed in you. They, they let me know that up front. Um, so with that in mind, uh, tell us a little bit more about um, Vic.ai. Um, and, and in particular, if we can go back in the, in the way back machine to, to the before times, um, either a tail end of last year or coming into this year, kind of what, what, what's a Vic AI all about and what were you kind of, what were you trying to accomplish um, at that time when you get, get into it before we get into the pandemic kind of response and the challenges there? What, what were you up to? Yeah. 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 So, so obviously working with that cloud accounting platform, we realized, and also funnily enough, my mom is an accountant. So, so she thinks it's pretty funny that I'm, I'm automating accountants, but, but we just realized that accounting hasn't changed much. Um, and it's, uh, it, we just truly believe that uh, AI or predictive machine learning algorithms would be able to largely replace humans for much of the repetitive work. So, uh, so that's, that's why we started the company. And then we think that the platform would be able to uh, do some good for the world eventually by, by actually uh, helping companies perform better and make better decisions. But so that's kind of a next chapter. So uh, if we look back to just pre-pandemic times, I mean, we had just raised our Series A round in August. And then it always takes a little bit of time before you sort of get going from that. So we were really in the kind of ramp up mode. We had ramped up our team quite a bit. And I mean, we were, we were like super ready to go. Like we had a, a new team in place and three times as much resources. And we were just like about to, you know, really um, get going. So uh, <laughs> that was interesting. That didn't happen exactly as we planned it. So tell us a little bit about your, I guess to start with your go-to-market strategy. You had started to ramp up. Talk a little bit about like how were you selling your product? What was the, what was your strategy there? And 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 maybe a little bit about where your team was located at the time. Yeah, sure. the The accounting industry is built up um, with a lot of organizations, and everything is really centered about around probably 10 conferences throughout the year. So our, our entire go-to market strategy or our, our entire lead generation strategy is really in-person events uh, around the, the whole calendar and, you know, in 10 different cities. So, uh, so we had that all planned out. Uh, also on the back of having a round raised, we had the funds to participate in all of these events and you know, be a gold and platinum sponsor and all that fancy stuff. And, and we had spent quite significant amount of time laying out that entire uh, calendar for the whole year, negotiating and planning and, and all of that. So, uh, so that was our entire strategy coming into Q1 was doing these 10, um, big conferences and that was our lead generation strategy. So we had obviously, <laughs> we needed to change that um, when, when kind of late February, when we realized that this, this, isn't gonna, this isn't gonna be the year that we anticipated. So uh, basically we had, to, we had to redo it all from scratch, which was an interesting challenge. So what did you end up doing? Yeah, and I, it was actually my co-founder that headed up this. Um, he, he's done an amazing job. Um, we had to uh, first just delete our entire plan um, <laughs> and then figure out what we, what we wanted to do. And I know, I mean, like the only thing we could do was go digital. Um, and, but there was, wasn't really ways of doing it. We didn't have online conferences that anyone had 
you know, made available yet, or we just had to plan it from our own perspective and what we were able to do with our resources. So uh, we did a couple of things that worked really well. Um, one was we created a YouTube channel that we didn't have before. Um, the second smart thing that we did was we were able to invite potential customers. So often the decision makers in these accounting firms to participate in our podcasts. And then we would write eBooks about the content of the podcast after referencing these people. So they ended up being referenced in our content and that made them share our content all over LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere. So it was kind of an, an interesting, we kind of stumbled a little bit upon it. It was, it was intentional, but it worked better than we had anticipated. So, um, so we just had to turn it all digital with the YouTube channel. We wrote eBooks and we started doing uh, group demos. So instead of having one-on-one -on -one demos with, with, potential prospects, we set up these group demos that people could just jump onto. And um, that worked really well. So, I, I mean, our top of the funnel has, uh, has actually increased more than we had planned with the physical events. Um, and we're quite happy about that. So pushing them through the funnel is another thing though, but the top of the funnel is super healthy. That's great. It's, uh, it's nice to see that you've transformed. I think that that strategy of of engaging decision makers uh, and being patient. Like, you know, you, you can't necessarily sell them right away, but by bringing them along the journey, then they become more uh, engaged and they become more committed to you and your brand and a bunch of other things that they might not otherwise have been. Um, so good on you for sort of puzzling through it. Um, so geographically, your team was largely remote. You had some central hubs. So tell us a little bit about where everybody was located because you, um, you have moved recently or at least you've come back to, to New York from Florida. So tell me a little bit about like where everybody was and then how you guys have operated to date. Yeah, and, and I think luckily we've been very remote from the beginning. So we started in Norway um, with, with some of our uh, technical team. Um, we moved to the U.S. We built up some of the administrative functions here. So we've always had that remote uh, part. And then that just continued to grow. So we have, we're about 60 or 70% remote um, with people all around the world, really. I think we're in nine different countries. So uh, we're, I, yeah, we're 11 nationalities in nine different countries. So we're, we're quite spread out. And that, that, helped us uh, in in the transition because we didn't have to change how we operated much we have our we have something that works really well we have our weekly all hands on monday morning so monday morning est so so it's actually afternoon in in europe and probably in the middle of the night for new zealand but uh <laughs> that's a, it's a hard one to crack when you have so many time zones but the weekly all hands monday mornings work really well we've always done that and then we've had a, a weekly recap meeting that always uh, works quite well. So we've, there, there's always been remote people on all of these calls. We didn't have to change anything for that. So, uh, so, so that's, that's been quite good. I think where it's most challenging is like sales and marketing because they were in the office in New York. That was, that was the only significant hub we had of people that were interacting with each other every, every week. And, uh, and that's where we had to make some changes in how we were running sales and marketing. So um, myself, I, uh, I flew to Florida in the beginning of March and, uh, and I've been down there for, for five or six months. So most 
people tell me that that sounds real nice. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's nice when you go outside, but you're still working inside for 12 hours per day. So, I mean, it's, it's more the isolation that that's hard, but, uh, I can't complain about, uh, about the, that location. So, but now I'm back in the city and I'm super happy about it. And, uh, from a, from an operating standpoint, when we spoke, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the things you were finding was that you were, were being isolated by yourself and how do you stay motivated? Um, you've obviously changed your geography going back to New York. And has that meant that you've interacted with your team? Have you been bringing some small groups together? What's been going on um, since you made the geographic change? Yeah, we've uh, we've tried to have uh, some meetups in the office. So um, I, I was working yesterday with my product manager and our product designer, and that was that was the first time I had seen them in in almost six months, and it was it was almost a little surrealistic. It was a little weird, but it, but it was also super good. It was very productive. We got so much stuff done, and and we we got a lot of energy out of that. And uh, and that that kind of refers to what we chatted about is when you're isolated. I mean, at least I get energy from working with my team. Um, so when you don't have that, and Zoom can't replicate it in any way. So, so I mean, you, you, don't, you don't get any external energy at all, or at least I didn't get any external energy. So you need to build or find all that energy internally instead. And, and that's quite the, that's, that's a big mental shift, at least for me, that I was struggling through the, the, the lockdown or pandemic times. Have you found, did you change some habits for yourself or have you found things that you're now doing differently as a result? Like as an entrepreneur, are there new habits you've picked up or new, new strategies? You talked a little bit about your, your weekly all hands, but are there things that you're doing for yourself that have contributed to it or, or yourself yeah. or your, or with your co-founder? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, the first three months, I, I wasn't prepared for this. I just, I, I got down to Florida and, and I was working in my den uh, 12 hours a day um, and, you know, for three months. And then um, after those three months, I was starting to look forward to the weekend. And that's a pretty horrible sign because you know something is wrong when you start looking forward to the weekend. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't prepare for it. I just continued pushing and every physical meeting was just a Zoom meeting and my calendar was really, really packed back to back. And it took me a, maybe a little bit too long to figure it out that something was wrong. But, but when I did, I changed it up quite a lot. So I, I stopped having full days back to back Zoom meetings. I picked up road biking. So I go out biking in the morning, uh, at least probably two to three days per week, try to do a hundred miles per week to keep myself in shape, which is, which is good. And uh, I go out for lunch instead of just sitting inside hammering. So I just, I take 60 minutes and I go outside and I find my place to sit and have lunch. So that's been good. Then I don't work in the weekends. So I typically work in the weekends because it's not a, it's not a problem, but I, I stopped doing that just to get like a clean break and then try to do something with my fiance in the weekends. So definitely changed it up quite a lot. That's awesome. It is, uh, it's astonishing as entrepreneurs, how we sometimes aren't, we're not even aware. And then when we become aware, I don't know how you felt about this, but I always feel like, well, you dummy, how come you notice that, you know, eight weeks ago, like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm always grateful that I noticed it at the time, but I'm often like, come on, like really? Uh, yeah. it's, and it's important to act on it. 
um, we, we chat a little bit about this on Tuesday around how do you give yourself permission to look, I got to take the weekends off. So I, I know that that's the time where it's um, where I've got to reset. Um, so it's um, it's a challenge from that standpoint. I, I want to go back to um, your your uh, Vic.ai you know, work and what you're, what you're doing there, you're now, I guess you're, you're a year into having the capital. Um, mm -hmm. How, how is the business going? You talked about sales and other things. Are there other things that you've changed in the business as a result of this that, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about what I think of as activation of your top of fun is healthy, but how do you get them through the sales process? Like what else is going on there that you're, um, you're addressing from a, an entrepreneurial standpoint? Yeah, um, probably quite a lot. But um, I mean, the, the good thing about recently having raced rather than being at the end of your runway is that you can just turn down your burn uh, a little bit from what you had planned and you can survive for quite a long time. So, I mean, that's obviously one of the things we've done because you, you don't want to risk running out of runway. Um, and we don't know if it's a one-year thing or a two-year thing, what we're going through. So, I mean, that was one of the more obvious things, which basically we, we have 15 less people than we would have had according to our original budget. So, I mean, we were ramping up, but we were in the ramp up and we just paused that. So, I mean, that's one of the things we, we clearly did on the on the organizational side of things and then most of the changes was around sales and marketing um how i think one of the things we, we we had to figure out was how do we motivate the sales team and i mean salespeople like to be around people that's their sales they're extroverts they like they get energy from from clients and and that's really uh, hard to to be locked locked down when you're in that kind of role and I mean, we knew that in a digital world where you're not on stand collecting leads, but you're actually doing digital stuff, we had to track real closely with the activity levels of our salespeople. And not because we wanted to use it to kind of tell them that they're not doing their job, but we, we really just wanted to create some motivation around uh, getting activities done because it's, it's the number of outreach. It's the number of follow-ups. It's the number of demos. It's the number of these things. So we try to create motivation around that and having leaderboard and, and, you know, having the whole company come around the sales team when they're, when they're exceeding their, um, kind of activity levels, because we may not close so much. So if we close less, you can kind of chair the sales team for closing and we kind of expect them to close a little less. So you have to find other things to motivate them and chair, chair the sales team forward. So, I mean, we changed, we changed some stuff around how we operate there. Uh, that's the thing I can remember, um, top of my head. That's been this way. I think one of the things you, you brought up is, this idea of the planning cycle and, and and at the beginning of this i posted quite a lot about people and, and i said look you got to assume this is, is six months is you know collapsing and then we've got 12 to 18 months of recession after it and you know i had a lot of people at that time say really you think it's going to be that bad and of course now i'm thinking well that was dumb i should have planned i should have thought about it as like 12 to 18 months of sort of a shit show and then and then the recession etc so it's it's interesting i think we've all expanded our our planning horizons out. And like you, I'm, I'm assuming 2021 and 2022 are going to be disrupted in some way in some meaningful 
you know, and from a strategy standpoint, sort of thinking that through. And as you said, you talked about it through a capital lens. It's also how you operate. It's your, your sales function. And I know one of the things we had the same issue at upside on the sales side, we, we knew that our close rate was going to drop, but we still needed to do the activities. Um, mm. So it's a, uh, it's, it's been interesting to see a lot of other companies follow the same patterns and be looking for those same things. Cause we also had an in-person sales organization that was, it was inside sales on the phones for the most part, but they were with each other, right? They could listen to each other's calls. So I don't know if you've seen any of the, have you found anything in particular that you found to be working particularly well in that sales environment? Yeah, I think what we did uh, work really well and again my it was my uh, my co-founders leading the sales marketing team so all credit to him for this but we we used hubspot and we we upgraded to hubspot enterprise which has a lot more reporting and tracking and we just are really um, thorough in tracking activities and we set activity goals so i mean that really worked i mean we were we're probably doing way more activities now than when we were in the office just because you you know you you get what you measure and we didn't really measure it that thoroughly before and now we're really measuring it's like we're, we're focusing more on the activities than the number of deals you close kind of so if okay. that's the really thing that you know gets everyone going that's the thing that people want to want to try to do and i mean no none of the sales people want to be at the bottom of the activities list because we publish it all the time so uh so i, I think that worked really well um, the, the guys have been good at building up a pipe. And I mean, we've closed uh, quite a lot of business through, through this uh, phase. And I think it's basically uh, attributed only to the digital events that we did and the fact that they kept their activities up. So if we hadn't done all the, all the digital events and we've done half of the activities, we probably closed half of the deals. So I think what we did worked quite well. But um, I think it's good for everyone to know that, you know, it's not going so well. Like most businesses are quite impacted by this. So I think that that always makes it, uh, makes it a little better in terms of you're not the only one that is struggling due to this. Like everyone is basically struggling unless you're, I mean, soon. But, um, you know, you can't always be the, 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 that, that kind of outlier. So I, we, we tell our team that as well, because the sales team, the sales guys aren't feeling well when they're not closing deals, that their business, they're closed deals for 10 years and suddenly they're not closing uh, much or they're way under budget. And I mean, that's hard for them. So we'll uh, be able to tell them that, you know, everyone's closing less deal or less deals. We're going to, we're going to turn down our expectations and focus on the activities and building up relationship with potential customers instead. I, I, that, that's been our strategy. So, you know, hopefully that will pay uh, when we can start close more deals again, maybe Q4, maybe next year we'll see. That's a, that's really important. I, I like your publishing the leaderboard side because it's both, it puts a little pressure on, but it also is acknowledging the level of work. Like one of the things we've found is it's, we're not seeing each other, right? It's not like you're walking through the office and you're seeing the sales team on, you know, on calls and you don't have the visual cues. You don't have the, Hey, we, we went to this great event and we, we collected, you know, 250 leads and we met with three great people and you don't have the storytelling either that comes along with it. That's sort of that ad hoc bit. And uh, the idea of publishing those leaderboards and acknowledging, look, we're, we're all hustling here. We may not be getting the outcomes that we want right now, but it's not for a lack of effort or engagement. And so the idea of publishing that I think is really, really smart. Um, so you're an investor in a bunch of different companies. I don't know how active you are. 
Um, it sounds like you're, you're more active in like most investors in some rather than others. Can you tell us a little bit, not necessarily by name, but are you observing things within your investments where either companies are doing stuff that's really, really smart um, or stuff that's unbelievably boneheaded that you advise against? Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not that active in, in the, in, with my angel investments, but I think I see or hear more through sort of like founder networks and, and, and also some people that were interviewing because there's a, a, a lot of good talent on the market now. And it seems that, I mean, certain companies are again, closer to the end of their runway rather than the beginning of it. And, and I, I, I know that many are trying to squeeze uh, extra hours and extra juice out of their, their teams, um, which I don't think is a great idea right now. Um, even if the company like may desperately need it, um, I, I, I think it's a kind of a short-sighted way of getting yourself out of trouble. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's, that I don't think is a very smart thing to do. Everyone's struggling with something uh, during this. So having immense work pressure on top of that um, isn't going to be the best way out, I believe. So, so that, that's, that's on the negative side. And then I think some companies have done the people side really well, the, the, the HR side of things, really taking care of people instead. And, and I think, you build some sort of long lasting, uh, hopefully bond with your employees or your team members that they would, they like, they'll remember back in, you know, this company really helped me through this phase or they were super awesome. They gave me some days off or, you know, they didn't push me hard when I had my kids at home, they understood the rescheduled meetings, they did all of these things. So when you come out of that, I think those team members are going to remember that and, and it will hopefully make, you know, the team more, more sticky and you know um, work better together so that that's what I observe yeah having a little bit of a long view and and playing for that both with your customers as well as your employees is really important um, uh, we've, we've touched on quite a bit around sales here I'm curious we had a question around um, have you ever hired kind of freelance or or contract sales um, uh, people, right? Are, are all your employees, are all those salespeople, you know, full-time, um, employees, or have you done some experiments with, um, outside contractors or freelancers? Yeah. So for sales, I've, I've never done that. I've had, um, many, many sales teams and a lot of salespeople. And at least at, at our stage, what you need from your sales team is it's, it's, it's really like a two way thing. The sales team need to give a lot of feedback to you on what's working and what's not working. So, I mean, later stage companies, they have more of their things figured out and they can kind of mass produce sales. And I think at that point you can give someone a manual, a good salesperson, and here's how you do it. And we've done it, you know, a hundred times before. So at our stage, that doesn't work. I would never consider outsourcing. I, I want to have my, my salespeople as close to me as possible and, uh, and, and be really good with them in terms of we, if we have something that doesn't sell to a certain target group, it's not their fault. It's our fault. So I, I need them to tell me that so that we can change things. So, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't consider that uh, at our stage or at our stage and, and before. So probably before series B, series C, I don't think that's a great idea. 
I, uh, I completely agree with you. One of the things I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about, typically they're, they're tech founders. So they're the, they kind of come at it through a technology or a product lens and they think, oh, well, now that we've got the thing, we've demonstrated product market fit, however they have. Um, well, now we just need to hire a sales force. And um, I often really caution against that in the early, in the early going, even just hiring your first salesperson if you don't know how you're, you, you're selling it now, if you don't have a point of view about it as, a, as the, one of the founders, man, you are gonna be in real trouble because um, no matter how great the salesperson is or how close you keep them to you, you lose the nuance and the fidelity of it. And, uh, and so as a product person or as a founder, you know, you've gotta kind of figure it out yourself enough where assume you're gonna get a 75% loss rate, you know, a, a friction, hiring that person, no matter how great they are, because they're just not you. Right? They're never going to be exactly. able to sell the product as well as yeah. you can. Totally. And I don't think you really can say you have product market fit until you have other sales people selling your stuff, because the, the founders can sometimes find magical ways of selling things that you can't replicate to, to, to a sales team. So, I mean, you, you can't just assume that in, because you can sell to someone that you have product market fit because you can, can be fooled. If you can teach like two, three people to sell your product and they can do so without too much of your help, then you may be there. Totally agree. It's so, it's so important to have something repeatable uh, that, and predictable. And I think a lot of people forget that part of it. And that, that goes true for, for what I think of our kind of the maverick salespeople. So you've got, you know, like they're like magicians, but they, you can't predict where they're going to be successful or not. And so you end up with, you know, either months or quarters where they're super successful and they sell a whole bunch of people. And then you get quarters where they made no sales and you have no way of knowing whether it had anything to do with anything. Um, so it becomes really hard. You know, you want, you want to be able to do things that are much more predictable. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, um, are you in a place where, from a, um, I guess, going back to the horizon looking, are there some key milestones that you want to see inside Vic that you are looking for to kind of push, that you're either pushing for, like are there key objectives that regardless of what's going on in the world that you're looking for inside the company to, to kind of either make your next big push or to potentially raise more capital? What's What's the... What are the things that you're eyeing right now and in, in time? Yeah, so we, when we realized the impact of this, we tried to focus internally as much as possible instead of externally because we knew it would be harder to attract as many new customers. So we, we, we turned our focus to our, our more sold to our platform and thinking about how can we make the platform even better for our existing customers rather than chasing new features or add-ons or new modules that would attract new customers to the platform. So, uh, so that's one of the things that we, 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 we've worked with and we're still working uh, quite a lot on, on that piece. And we, we kind of think that um, we'll do some new things from Q1 next year. And, and hopefully then will be, it will be a better market to try to push uh, towards a higher, a higher level of new customers coming in. So, I mean, when, when looking for or looking at raising more capital, you, you got to know exactly what you want to spend the capital on. 
right? And and right now, even if we if we raced right now, where would I where would I spend it? I can't really. It, I, it doesn't help me ten xing my marketing and sales team because they're not going to close more deals right now. So I, I think at some to some degree, I think if you're able to, it's it's kind of better to wait out the pandemic a little bit um, until the market is ready uh, to buy or things again. So uh, that, that's a little bit of the strategy we're uh, we're, we're uh, kind of playing after. But but we have some things with our technology. We need to build out our platform. It needs to support more things and need to open up. The, our, our potential customer base more by adding more integrations and certain features. So, I mean, we're trying to plan for that so that we can, um, I, I mean, we'll get to that in Q4 and Q1, and then hopefully we can start pushing more on the sales and marketing side and bringing on a higher higher uh, number of new customers again after that. So we've kind of taken it a little, a little easy the last two quarters and focused a lot on our core product instead and our existing clients and try to make them expand their usage with us rather than chasing the, uh, the new business or a proportion of that at least has changed a bit. Got it. Smart. All right. We've had a, we've got a few more minutes and we have a couple of questions that have come in. So um, early stage startup, you know, two, three people, you're sort of at the very beginning of this, you've got, um, you know, what do you think are, the criteria or the types of roles or positions you think are really important to, to add to your team early on? Either surprises that you found for yourself or, um, or ones or even mistakes. Hey, I, we hired this person too early. You know, just give us a sense yeah, of those yeah, early yeah. first people. I mean, it, it, it totally depends on your founding team and the capabilities. So if you're two tech founders, then you obviously need to add some commercial side to the, to the business. Um, but one thing that I, I don't think works well is to add too senior talent to a young company. Um, and, and too senior talent can be uh, people from, like you gotta have some stage fit is probably what I'm getting at. So uh, wh whatever your founding composition is, you'll need something like you maybe tech heavy or maybe sales heavy. So you, you always want to balance that out, but uh, you want to hire like great people, but you can't hire people that don't have stage fit. So, so that means if you are someone that is from a larger corporation and they used to have HR people and, you know, assistants and, you know, marketing people helping them with everything, you know, they're, they're not going to get things done. Uh, typically at, at another stage. So I think stage fit is the most important thing. You want to you stretch a little bit. If you're seed, you want to hire like series A or series B types of people or people working at companies with 50 or 100 employees, but you don't want to hire people that work at a thousand person company. So, I mean, that's, that's what I think about stage fit. So what, whatever you're lacking in your founding team is what you need to add just add the, the right type of stage fit people. I've always tried to do that at least. And I've seen other people. Uh, I mean, I've, I've actually, I, I did this mistake in my previous company. So I've learned it the hard way as well. Um, with my previous business, when we were adding, we, we, we had, we were 40, 50 people at that time. We had taken some VC uh, funding and we were uh, branching into more countries. And we needed a stronger executive team. And we hired three, uh, three C-level people uh, to the business. And then two of them were just way too senior. Like they had never worked at a company with less than a thousand people. And we were 50. So they came in and they were just, 
they, they weren't functioning. Really smart people, but non-functioning at our stage. They couldn't kind of go down and grab the business and pull it up to where it had to be. The distance was just too long. So, I mean, that's always one of the big challenges with hiring. I think you want to have people that can help pull the business forward. But if you select two senior people, they can't do it. That's a really good point. I have also made that mistake. Uh, and I've also learned that there's a big difference between people who have like connections out in the marketplace who might be domain experts in a particular field where you're looking for them to help you know, add credibility to your business or other types of things. Early on, we often think we have to hire those people, but there's lots of people out there that you can hire as consultants or as advisors where you can bring them in. They can play that role, but you're not asking them to manage your tiny little team where, they're, where they actually have to like produce um, on their own. And um, the other mistake that I've observed is you have that gap, I guess I'll just pile on, that gap between that senior person who you want to lead a function and the team that you have. And there's often a giant gulf there and you don't have the capacity to fill in the three levels of management in between because there's two people yeah. there. You don't need all that. Um, it's, it's a really tricky thing. The reverse is also tricky as you're scaling, which is you've got a great small group, but now you've got to figure out how to create three groups that are like that. And now you really need a manager and none of the people that are on that first team are capable of leading the whole thing and helping to understand that. So it's a, those growth phases that, that stage fits really, really important. Um, I've got one more speed round question for you. Luckily, it was framed as a yes or no question, but I will allow you to give some color commentary around it. Um, we had a question about, do you believe that a sales department is necessary? Good luck with that one. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'll go with yes for that one. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think people I complain sales. Yeah, what, what I often talk about is you need people who can, who are, sometimes they're called chief revenue officers, right? Sometimes they're, they're, you need somebody on the business side whose job it is, is to be bringing revenue in. And maybe in a B2B environment, it really is a sales organization. Maybe in a B2C environment, it's much more of a marketing organization or a growth yeah. team. But those are, um, those are our key points where, uh, you've got to have somebody who's paying attention at the right time of your company to figure out how you're going to get customers and, and deliver revenue. Um, uh, I got one more bonus question for you. It's a little bit easier, but, um, uh, but, but still nuanced and then we'll wrap up. Um, so during the economic downturn, either the last one, uh, which I know you had a business in, um, or in this one, and maybe within your investments, what's your take on, um, on sort of pursuing merger and acquisition activity at this time? Um, you know, is it, is, it a, is it easier, harder, just another thing? Do you have any point of view there? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I think, <laughs> so I think the, the, the first question is you, you got to figure out whether it's right for, for, for your business. And I mean, I, there's a lot of large companies that are aware of startups having, you know, a tougher time. So, uh, so, so I, I think that for some that may be probably a good opportunity in this environment. Um, but, uh, I mean, I've, 
I mean, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's hard. I mean, you you like I don't like to sell the startups that I that I have, and I kind of like like seeing them for a long time. So I mean, early M and A, I I'm I'm not that big of a fan of just like personally with the things that I that I do. I kind of like to hang around and build it for a long time. So uh, so I mean, we we wouldn't do that in this environment, for instance, even if it's tough. But I mean, it definitely makes sense for a lot of businesses that have built great technology, but you're just, you know, you don't have the opportunity to actually build uh, a large business because you can't get the funding, you can't get the people. There's just a harder way through. So startups are really hard. So pandemics doesn't help. <laughs> On that note, um, the, the no greater truth has been told. Startups are hard and the pandemic doesn't help. Um, well put. Uh, I'll just pile on the M&A side. The, the reverse of it is often that maybe there's companies out there with great technology and great and great people that if you're in a position to acquire them, they, they can give you a boost and, and help um, uh, maybe accelerate something, but you have to be very, very careful because um, you don't want them to drown you in the process. They, they take up a lot of time. So you have to be in a good, stable spot. Uh, with that, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really, really helpful for all of us to kind of hear your story and get your perspective. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case and uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.